All of us go through seasons of struggles in life and trials in life. All of us. Some of you might be going through it even right now, that season of struggle. But regardless of your prayer life and regardless of your consecration for the Lord and your commitment to the Lord, adversity will come to all of us. I really believe that. These seasons of life are for a purpose. And we cannot pray away God's seasons. And the seasons of struggles are meant to destroy our pride in ourselves. They're supposed to destroy our pride in our abilities and our achievements and our accomplishments. They're designed for a purpose. They have a purpose. These seasons of struggles are meant to reinforce our dependence on the sufficiency of Almighty God. That's what they're supposed to mean. These seasons of struggles are meant to bring us closer to the Lord. And I submit to you today that if I am closer to the Lord when I am going through these seasons of struggle as when I am not, I would be the greatest prayer warrior ever came down the pike. (laughs) When the wind of winter blows on your circumstances, you cling to the Lord closer and closer and harder. And we might not like the blinding wind and the icy grip of the winter season. But there's always a reason for these temporary inconveniences. There's always a reason for them. There are some things in life that are meant not to instantly change. Not to instantly remove. But to be outlived. Like the tree of the forest. The frost is covering it on the outside, but in the inside, silently. That same frost that is covering it is refurbishing, refurbishing and strengthening in preparation for the fruitful season when the sun is shining again. I want you to hear me right, please. This is very important. Temporary setbacks are meant to be an opportunity, not for fretting, but they are an opportunity for a fresh commitment. They are an opportunity for fresh renewal in your walk with God. If you look at your life as I look at my life, you're going to discover that there are seasons in all of our lives. There are seasons. There are seasons of sunshine. There are seasons of rain. There are seasons of blessings, but there are seasons of blasting. There are seasons of fruitfulness, and there are seasons of dryness. And many times we have gone through these seasons and all of their varieties. But each season... Is for a purpose. Each season is for a purpose. It's for a purpose. You know, in the Middle East, we have a saying that goes something like this Patience is a tree whose root is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. One of the most common mistakes Christians make, I want you to listen to me very carefully, please. This is important. One of the most common mistakes that most Christians make is that they make a permanent decision in a time of a temporary circumstance. Permanent decision based on temporary situation. Ah, but that's not the mistake that Naomi made. Thank God for that woman. Thank God that... In His sovereign grace, He kept those words for us, stored in the Scripture for nearly 3,000 years so we can be blessed of them today. Because Naomi took the only cure 
for comfort without God. Naomi followed the cure, the only cure, to get over the consequences of shortcuts. We saw Abimelech and his wife Naomi and his two sons go from Bethlehem, the house of bread, into the land of the Philistines. They left there supposedly temporarily, but they left without seeking solution among God's people or God's land. They went out into a foreign land, and they got comfortable there, away from God. And a temporary away from God led them to ten years away from God. Naomi put her hope and her trust in the God of her fathers. She knew that the God of the winter of her life is going to be the God of the sunshine that is to come. She knew that the God of the frost and the pain and agony that she went through is going to give way to the warmth of his deliverance. She believed that the God who allowed her and her family to suffer the consequences of their shortcuts is the God of a second chance and a second opportunity and the God of forgiveness and the God of restoration. I'm going to summarize chapter 2. I'm sure some of you are saying, now wait a minute, you skipped chapter 2 and going into chapter 3. I want to summarize chapter 2 for you. When they got back to Bethlehem, the only cure of turning back, going home again, Ruth decided, being the younger woman, that she's going to go, she's the the widowed daughter-in-law of Naomi, that she's going to go out and get a job. And she ended up with a minimum wage job. But in the middle of her minimum wage job, all of a sudden, miraculously, supernaturally, providentially, the boss invites her to the executive suite to have lunch with him. Just by accident. God was working it all out. And that's the summary of chapter 2. Now I come to chapter (laughs) 3. Because here you're going to see the incredible divine appointment. How God is working an appointment with destiny. Please listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you. God does everything He does in our lives by appointment. He does everything by appointment. God will bring to pass all the promises that He made to you because He works by appointment. God is never one second late or one second early. Why? Because he always works by appointment. And don't you ever forget that an appointment (laughs) is a meeting already set up. It's already set up. Now, you may not know about it, but God does. And even when the terrible wind are blowing in your face, God has already prepared a way of escape. The day you said yes to Jesus Christ, you have made an appointment with destiny. And God always keeps his appointments. When Naomi went through this indescribable pain, when she threw this indescribable loss, this indescribable grief, when she was going through that time, God was working out an appointment with destiny for her. And for her loyal daughter-in-law, Ruth. When Naomi was going through the frosty winter, God was preparing her for the warmth of His sunshine. Listen to me very carefully. Your blessings may not come to you the way you thought it would. (laughs) Your blessings may not come to you through the person you thought it would. But when God is in charge in your life, 
Hear me right. When God is in charge in your life, rest assured that He is going to keep His appointment. Now, amen belongs here. God always synchronizes His answer to accomplish His purpose. He always synchronizes His answer to accomplish His purpose. I was coming back from Kansas City, and uh, I had forgotten not to fly on Fridays, but uh, I couldn't help that appointment I had to keep. And, and I was coming back Friday afternoon, and coming to Atlanta Friday afternoon, those of you who have traveled, you know, we couldn't land on schedule. So the air controller must have instructed the pilot to wait in the air. <laughs> For the first time, it struck me with all the travels I've done, <laughs> the first time, I said, what a strange place to wait, in the air. I've done that spiritually too, believe me. (laughs) In here. But you see, the controller has to synchronize the scheduling of the landing. So the captain announced to us, and he said, well, you know, we're going to assume a holding pattern. I don't like that word. (laughs) Until further instruction. Now, some of you are now being instructed to be in a holding pattern until further instruction, and you don't like it any more than I like it. But God is synchronizing and working things out for your appointment. That's what He's doing. And here in Ruth chapter 3, you see God synchronizing His plan to work out. To change Naomi's and Ruth's despair to hope. To change their shattered dreams with a kinsman redeemer. To replace all the years that had eaten by the locusts to a great years of blessings. To give them one of the greatest blessings recorded in the Old Testament. A kinsman redeemer. And oh, what a kinsman redeemer God has prepared for them. The best kind you would want. I want to tell you something. You know, the best of matchmakers. Couldn't have pulled this one off. God is the best matchmaker that you will ever know. If and when you trust Him with all of your heart, He's going to match you with blessings. He's going to match you with people. He's going to match you with opportunities. He's going to match you with healings. He's going to match you with joy and peace. Unspeakable because he is the best matchmaker in the world. Do you remember the song in the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Let me sing it to you. No. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> matchmaker, matchmaker. Make me a match. Find me a fine. Catch me a catch. Make me a perfect match. That's what our God does. He's in the business of making perfect matches. What a great God we worship. What a great God we serve. He is the heavenly matchmaker. You know, when Naomi discovered that the man who had showed kindness to Ruth, her widowed daughter-in-law, was the kinsman redeemer, And he also happened to be one of the richest men in Bethlehem. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) She knew that this was a match made in heaven. (laughs) I mean, she couldn't have thought of a better one. And literally it was. It was a match made in heaven. I am convinced that beyond marrying Boaz for his money, (laughs) Naomi knew that Boaz's character is to be trusted implicitly. Look at verses 2. 
4 and 18 of chapter 3 in the book of Ruth. Naomi, who lived through the pain of shortcuts, knew that these two, Bowers and Ruth, are a real match. <laughs> Naomi, who have learned from the pain of failure and compromise, knew that Ruth and Bowers share a common moral excellence, that they share a common loyalty, that they share a character of sterling quality, and they truly deserve each other. To me, Naomi proved the saying that no man is actually successful until his mother-in-law admits it. (laughs) I mean, they say that when a man decides to marry, it may be the very last decision he will ever be allowed to make. (laughs) And I heard this, I don't know, some time ago about two political candidates in Arkansas, and I'm not going to try to guess who they are. (laughs) But these political candidates for political office were having a public debate, and it was a heated debate, and one of the candidates uh, said, he said, what about the powerful interests that control you? And the other candidate screamed back, he said, you leave my wife out of this. (laughs) You figured it out. (laughs) And you know, you must remember that for Naomi to try to broker this marriage between Bowers and her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, is perfectly normal in that culture, in that day. Perfectly normal. This is how marriage is always well arranged. And you must understand that. Back then, parents got together and they talked about their children. They matched their children. In that culture, there were no dates in the disco. There were no... Uh, passionate moments in the movies, uh, none of that stuff. There were no opportunities to hold hands in the moonlight. <laughs> they didn't do that back then. And you've got to understand that in the context of that culture or in the part of the woman, she did not have to impress him with her measurements. Thank God. She did not have to impress him with her max factor beauty, but with the beauty of holiness. You see? The Bible never insults a woman by rating her on a number card. Now, many men will talk about women like they're talking about racehorses. Well, she's a 10. Ah, That's degrading as far as I'm concerned. But Mother Naomi knew that these two had something far more in common than the superficial things by which we judge people. But more than that, she also knew that God is at work. The moment Ruth came back and told Mother Naomi that she met this man and she knew he was a kinsman redeemer, he invited me to the executive office, an executive dining room, and when I had lunch with him, she said, God is doing it. <laughs> God is at work. Bowers and Ruth excelled in character, excelled in integrity, they excelled in honesty, they excelled in loyalty. How we desperately need these qualities today. But there's something else very important I have to tell you about Ruth's approach to Bowers that you must understand in the context of the history and culture. Verses 3 to 13 of Ruth chapter 3. You must understand this because there are preachers in these liberal churches who take this out of context and they interpret it from a modern day perspective promiscuous kind of society understanding and say that Ruth 
was approaching Boaz for sexual favors. Far from the truth. Far from it. You see, the morality and the character of these two are absolutely unquestionable. Not only that, but the old man in that time hesitated from proposing to Ruth, the younger woman, simply because a man of his stature at that time will never be turned down by Ruth. And therefore, he did not want to put her in that awkward place of rejecting which he cannot do. You've got to understand this from a cultural and historical point of view. And that is why in verse 10, you see it clearly. I mean, Bowers was giving Ruth all the signals, but he could not propose to her because of that culture of the day. So when Ruth said, okay, it's all right to propose to me, look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Here's what Bowers said. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. A man of his stature could never have been turned down by Ruth had he approached her first. And that is why he was excited (laughs) as soon as Ruth said, it's okay to propose marriage to me. You're a kinsman redeemer. You know, some of these modern liberal interpreters and liberal commentaries are influenced by the sleazy tabloid mindset of our time when they interpret the Scripture. When you interpret the Scripture, you must be truthful to its cultural and historical setting. Not interpreted by the modern Hollywood promiscuous standard. In fact, Ruth followed Naomi's plan in a complete trust in the God of Naomi. Remember what I said in the last message, that Ruth came to trust in the God of Naomi. She's a Moabite. She's a Gentile coming into the Jewish family, clinking to her mother-in-law and would not leave her because of Naomi's testimony. You know, actually, women are very subtle. And I heard about this lady who went on a cruise, and then she kept gazing at the man on the cruise. You know, go sit in the dining room. She sit in a place where she can just look at him and gaze at him. Goes on the bridge, I mean, she sees him, she just looks at him. After two or three days, the man just didn't know what's going on. So he went over to her and I said, now, madam, do I know you from somewhere? She said, oh, no, not at all. It's just that you remind me so much of my third husband. (laughs) He said, well, that's nice, but how many husbands had you? She said, two. (laughs) Subtlety. (laughs) That's what Ruth was doing here. Absolute subtlety. In fact, Maxie Dunneman tells a story, a true story, is an elderly man who was spending quite a bit of time with another uh, elderly woman, and uh, neither of them ever been married before, and and both of them were living alone, and and gradually, you know, the old man's heart was palpitating a little bit, and and he recognized the attachment, but he was shy, and, and he did not, you know, was lacking in subtlety like most men do, and Finally, you know, he worked hard in picking up courage, you know, getting over his anxiety, over his fear. And finally he went to her house and knocked on the door and he said, uh, he blurted out before he can really lose his nerve. So he said, let's get married. And the lady was so surprised and she kind of threw her hands up in the air. And she said, that is a wonderful idea, but who would have us? Oh, subtlety. 
I am sure that by now some of you are saying, what is a kinsman redeemer? Some of you know what that means, but others are asking the question, what's a kinsman redeemer? What's a kinsman redeemer? And I'm so glad I can read your mind and hear you ask that question because I want to answer it. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25, it tells the people of God in the Old Testament that when a man dies, his brother takes his wife as his own wife. Why? In order to save her from public humiliation and raises an offspring for his brother. And I often wondered when I was a youngster and I have three older brothers getting married. I hate to tell you this, but I'll confess it anyway. And I said, I'm so glad I don't live in the Old Testament. Because before these boys get married, I want to have a say in this. Because if any of them keel over, I'm going to end up with this woman. You know? <laughs> I've got to have a say in who my brother marries. And I'm, I wonder whether that happened in the Old Testament or not. But thank God we're in the New Testament. But furthermore, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25... Again, 25, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, so you can remember them. It tells us that the nearest of kin, the nearest of kin in the family, is to redeem the lost, not only land, but individuals. Let me explain it. A member of the family decides to sell himself into slavery simply because they ran out of money and they needed money. What happens? The nearest of kin comes in and redeem him. He makes that payment to the master who bought him into slavery and frees him. That is the task of that kinsman redeemer. And that's why the kinsman redeemer is like a trustee. He's the one who posts bail and gets you out. And this law of God was made there in order to make a provision to remind the people of God that they have a collective responsibility to one another. Why? Because the people of God, in their relationship with each other, God is saying, it flows out of the covenant relationship that you have with Yahweh. The law was intended to remind everybody that they did not own anything. It intended to remind them that everything they have belongs to Yahweh. And the only managers, the only stewards of what God has given them. I want to tell you, if you ever think what you have is yours, you are in trouble. This is to remind them and to remind us that all of our possessions belong to Him. And they were given to us, not for selfish use, but to help others, especially those nearest and dearest. That's what the law intended. Yahweh redeemed His people out of Egypt. Why? So that all of those who belong to Yahweh should be able to redeem each other, should be able to serve each other, should be able to help deliver each other. Do you know one of the greatest characteristics of our God... I don't know that I can say this without breaking down. Is that He is our Redeemer, God. He is our Redeemer. He redeemed me from the penalty of sin, which is eternal hell. He has redeemed me from Satan's oppression. He has redeemed me from the mastery of sin. He has redeemed me from the slavery of sin. And oh, what a price that He paid for that redemption. The pure blood of His only begotten Son. You see, it is not by accident. It is not by accident that God working all these things so that 
Bowers and Ruth will have a son who named Obed. And Obed had a son whose name is Jesse. And Jesse had a son whose name is David. It is not by accident that Bowers and Ruth had the grandfather of King David. It is not by accident that the kinsman redeemer is related to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. It is not by accident. Well, so far, so good. There's a sticky wicket here in verses 12 and 13. It's sort of an unexpected complication. If you look at it, verses 12 and 13, Bowers is a man of honor. He's a man of integrity. And while he was flattered by Ruth's proposal, and he wanted to be married as much as anything, but he said, we've got to do that the right way. He said, there is another kinsman redeemer who's still alive, who's closer to Naomi's family than I. And we'll go over. And if he would redeem you, that would be fine. It would be my loss. But if he doesn't, I would redeem. Power solved the problem honorably, honestly, legally. And you know what? Above all else, with grace. With grace. You see, grace is the characteristic of a kinsman redeemer. Grace was the characteristic of this man, Boaz. But grace is the characteristic of our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was grace that motivated him to redeem us, to die on the cross of Calvary. It was grace that overruled the consequences of your shortcuts and my shortcuts. It was grace that made provision for all of our needs. It is grace that is so rich in resources that blesses us every single day. Boaz may have been a a fine kinsman redeemer, but he is nothing in comparison to our kinsman redeemer. Our kinsman redeemer brings forgiveness. Our kinsman redeemer calls us children after we've been in enmity with him. Our kinsman redeemer enters with us into the seasons of pain and suffering. Our kinsman redeemer provides for all of our needs. Our kinsman redeemer walks with us in the very fiery furnace of life. Our kinsman redeemer never leaves us nor forsake us. Our kinsman redeemer holds us secure in the hollows of his hands. Our kinsman redeemer acts as a fortress, as a tower of strength for us. Our kinsman redeemer never slumber nor sleep. Our kinsman redeemer rides the clouds for your help. Our kinsman redeemer everlasting arm is underneath. He is our shield. He's our defender. He's our protector. He's our provider. He's our stronghold. That's our kinsman redeemer. But there's something very important that our kinsman redeemer is ultimately going to do. Oh, I'm getting ready to shout. He's going to welcome us at the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's going to be on the other side to welcome us when the bride of Christ meets him on the air and the bridegroom will present us without a wrinkle and without a spot to his daddy. 
Those are the men and women and the boys and girls for whom I have died. Those are the ones who have surrendered to my lordship. They're the ones who have accepted me as their kinsman redeemer. And he'll present us in heaven. But not everybody's going to make it to heaven. Only those who have accepted that redemption on the cross of Calvary, that payment that was paid on your behalf, only those will make it to the wedding supper of the Lamb. If somebody here today who says, I believe he's a redeemer, but he's not my redeemer, today, today, he can be your kinsman redeemer. He is welcoming you with open arms in the presence of a holy God whose eyes can see all things. Not only sees your past, but knows your thoughts before you think them. The great and mighty creator, redeemer, God, is here in the person of his Holy Spirit. And if he's spoken to your heart today, harden not your heart. If he has not become your kinsman, redeemer, say today, I want him to be my redeemer. To set me free from sin. To set me free from addiction. To set me free from the consequences of sin. And put me on my way to heaven. Father God, you are a mighty and a great God. You have prepared them for this message and this message for them. And for all of us, O precious Heavenly Father, who have taken your redemption for granted, who have grown accustomed to your blessings and we've taken them for granted, those of us, O God, who think that it's all because of our cleverness and hard work, Remind us who's in charge, who owns it all. Remind us of our managerialship. Father God, I pray that the lives that stood to receive you as Redeemer be changed in the name of Jesus right now. Father God, that they will come to us and seek to walk with you and be discipled. For we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.